episode 91, Erica Dewan, author of the best-selling book, Digital Body Language. Well, my favorite mistake is, of course, one that I've learned a lot from, and we learn from all our mistakes, but um, I think this one really set me on an important path, which even helped drive my passion to write my new book. I'm Mark Rabin. This is my favorite mistake. In this podcast, you'll hear business leaders and other really interesting people talking about their favorite mistakes. Because we all make mistakes, but what matters is learning from our mistakes instead of repeating them over and over again. So this is the place for honest reflection and conversation, personal growth and professional success. Visit our website at myfavoritemistakepodcast.com. For links, show notes, and information about Erica's book, including a chance to enter to win a free copy, go to markgraben.com slash mistake91. Our guest today is Erica Dewan. She is a globally recognized leadership expert and keynote speaker. She helps organizations and leaders innovate faster and further together. She has a BS from the Wharton School, an MPA from Harvard Kennedy School, and an MBA from MIT Sloan, one of my alma maters. So before I tell you a little bit more about Erica, let me first off say thank you and, and welcome. It's great to be here, Mark. I've had a chance to talk to an MIT Sloan professor, Jonathan Burns. I don't know if you took a class with him. Years ago, I think I remember, but um, you know, <laughs> I often don't always remember what I learned in business school anymore. <laughs> Well, and maybe with the work that you've done and, and the books you're writing, maybe um, some of that moves well beyond what either of us learned, even at a, a great institution like MIT Sloan or the other amazing schools that you've been to. Absolutely. You know, I think so much of what we learned five or 10 years ago, I think, has to be adapted for our time. So uh, as Mark, you've done with your podcast, learning is iterative now, and we have to adapt very quickly to the new changes of our world. Yeah. And learning how to learn is a great skill and uh, great universities help tee you up uh, for that, I would say for sure. Um, we're going to talk uh, later on about Erica's latest book. It's called Digital Body Language, How to Build Trust and Connection No Matter the Distance. So that is certainly not a topic that was being covered there 20 years ago. I mean, we had email and AOL messenger. I'm dating myself. That was the digital realm at that point. Absolutely. I mean, AOL messenger was, I, I started using it when I was in high school and it was like this new social cool thing. And uh, I am close to Mark Zuckerberg's age. So Facebook was in my college years, but I think for most of us that are, could date ourselves to the 1980s or, um, or 1970s, we may not be used to um, using a lot of these tools as a child, but have definitely become adept in, as an adult. Adep hopefully adept. If not adept, gosh, we are having to use them a lot. So I'm, I'm really curious to pick your brain about that um, later on. Um, so before we talk about that topic, and I'm sure it'll bring up um, mistakes that, that you've made or that you've seen others make, you know, here when we talk about a favorite mistake with all the different things that you've done as an entrepreneur and in different projects and initiatives and settings, I'm curious what your answer is to this question. What's your favorite mistake, Erica? Well, my favorite mistake is, of course, one that I've learned a lot from. And we learn from all our mistakes. But um, I think this one really 
set me on an important path, which even helped drive my passion to write my new book. Uh, recently, you know, this is about three or four years ago, I hired a new intern to work with me. And uh, he worked with me remotely. So he's based in Dallas and I was based in New York. And we'll call him Jim for the sake of anonymity. But when we started our relationship, I thought things were going great. Jim was incredibly responsive. I would send him a work request. He would get it done within 24 hours. Um, I would check in and say, does this sound good? And he would write quick to the point messages like, okay, or got it. Uh, I would have quick calls with him all conference calls, not video calls years ago to make sure things were on track. Uh, and he would take notes and get on them within that week. And I felt like it was a fantastic working relationship. That was until six weeks in when I got on a call with him and I said, you know, I know we're six weeks in. I think things are going great. How do you think things are going? And he finally said, I don't like this internship. I'm thinking about quitting today. And all of a sudden, I realized that what I thought was going very well for him was going abysmally terribly. What was actually happening was my brief to the point messages for Jim, who was a Gen Zer, very much a digital native, often lacked cues of how he was doing about his work. My quick THX period emails made it made to him felt a bit disrespectful because I wasn't acknowledging the hours and hours he was spending on his work. I would take conference calls with him, but sometimes I would show up late. I would take other calls during that conference because my client called. And there were so many cases where I wasn't valuing Jim's time. I wasn't checking in with him to make sure he had all the tools he needed to get his work done. I wasn't showing appreciation and respect. And so my favorite mistake was really the terrible ways that I treated Jim that allowed me to recognize how I needed to fix it. The first thing I did was I realized he wanted to really learn and grow. So we set up some learning goals for him. Every single week, we set aside 20 minutes on the phone to talk about things he wanted to learn about that were outside of his day-to-day work. Secondly, about showing my appreciation letting him know where his work stood with me when he sent emails instead of sending those brief low context messages. And most importantly, on a regular basis, we started using Zoom years before it got popular and we got on (laughs) video calls and it made a massive difference. So my favorite mistake was realizing that I didn't check in with Jim and I will never forget. And I've always learned to don't assume people are okay. Check in with them. Uh, You never know what you can learn by simply asking. It's great that he spoke up, right? To help rather than just quitting, or I don't know if this was like, he might've ghosted you and you would have been wondering, okay, when you might've thought, oh, well, oh, Jim was a flake. When there was actually something underneath the surface, surface, he, he gave you that gift of, that feedback, if you will, right? That's right. I mean, we live in a world with slow and no responses or just if, if we get pissed off, maybe from someone sending that rude email, we may never respond again. It can make or break relationships today. And so what I learned from that is I got a second chance and I took it and we made the relationship better and we still have a great relationship today. But the key underpinning of that is in our changing world, whether we're face-to-face in hybrid settings or virtual, 
we have to remember that taking the time to value others means showing, I hear you, I appreciate you, and I want to hear from you. Was, and, and, you know, and and this, this podcast, we reflect on mistakes and we, we think about, you know, how did we learn it was a mistake and what can we do different going forward? Um, I mean, were you being a little too hard on yourself when you said your behavior was terrible? Was it blanket statement terrible or does it just depend on needing to know the needs and the communication style of the different people that you're working with? You know, I would say in that case, it was my behavior was blind. I was blind to some of the signals I was sending that were not engaging Jim, were not um, showing appreciation for his hard work. And one of the things I would say that made it terrible is I've been in that seat too. And I I remember um, having my first job on Wall Street and at Lehman Brothers when I was 22 years old and getting these terrible messages from my boss, like, we need to talk, dot, 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 or (laughs) in all caps, call me now. And I remember feeling the anxiety rush through me and the pressure to perform and having sleepless nights if I got, you know, this angry message from a manager. And I, I think at the end of the day, because I had been there too, I could have known better. And, you know, we all know empathy is about stepping into the shoes of another while remaining in your own shoes. But in today's world, I like to say empathy is reading messages carefully and writing clearly. And so what I've learned through this favorite mistake is that we have to almost upgrade those skills for our modern times. It's not just about being in the room with one another and having good eye contact. It's it's being careful and thoughtful in an entirely new way. When you think about that vague message that comes in on a Friday, I received one of those. You're, you're making me think of something recently where one of the organizations I work with, one of the leaders sent a message. It said basically like, uh, we need to schedule time to talk next Monday. And the bad habit that I'm trying to break, the mistake that I'm trying to, uh, to stop making is my brain leaping to thinking somehow something awful is going to happen. And it, I, 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 you know, I tried to at least bring up the point of like, well, what's the meeting going to be about? And it turned out it was nothing really to worry about, but I might've fretted about it all weekend, which again could be my mistake, but at least I was able to clear that up. um, I have another one for you, a a boss that, that reviewed some materials from his team member and to be sort of hip and cool. What he did was as, as a boss, he, he wrote an email back saying, thanks for this let's talk on Monday, dot, 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 with three ellipses. And for this boss, he's he's a Gen Xer. The dot, dot, dot is like sort of casual, hang on, um, you know, continue the conversation. But this employee was a digital native who grew up in not only a- AOLIM, like us, Mark, but many other tools. Facebook was there throughout middle school. And uh, for digital natives, ellipses is actually the most passive aggressive punctuation mark. It can signal resentment for digital natives. So this Hmm. team member thought the boss was being passive aggressive the entire weekend and it ruined four days before they actually had a conversation. So it's just an example that, that helps us all remember that in today's world, body language hasn't disappeared. It's just transformed. And we have to be thoughtful of what signals we're sending, but also to assume good intent of others, as you said. Assume good intent and don't assume the worst is, is going to happen. Yeah. Um, one other question is just getting into details. Because one thing I've heard, like, let's say texting. A reply that says that great, that that's great. 
versus that's great, period. Why does that period at the end of the text message supposedly send such um, a strong signal? What is, what is that saying to the recipient sometimes? Well, we all know that punctuation is quite formal in platforms like like email. And I would actually say in the last year, it's become more informal, even in email as well. Uh, but in texting, it's much more informal and shorthand. And one of the things that has become common is if you put a period at the end of a text, it can imply uh, either anger or frustration instead of the end of a sentence. And, and a lot of this does come from instant messaging culture and how we may never really end our instant messages normally with full punctuation uh, and good grammar at the end. And so what I have learned is that we have to be conscious of these different punctuation marks we use. For example, a period at the end of a text for some can feel like anger, frustration. For others, it can just feel like good grammar at the end of a sentence. I know my father uses it that way. He starts his text with dear Erica and ends with love dad. And I'm just scroll through it because it's as long as a letter. Another one mark is all caps. If we write in all caps, what does that mean in a text? For some, that can feel like shouting. For others, it can feel like excitement. And for others, it can feel like urgency. And again, we're going to go to my father. It's because he doesn't know how to uncaps a text message. Uh, another one, exclamations, multiple exclamations for some. One can be like general enthusiasm. Five can feel like shouting or excitement. Um, and we can read it differently. And what I learned is that a lot of this depends on two things. Who has more and how much do we trust each other? So if you have more power, you have an opportunity actually to create more intimacy and informality with someone who has less power. You can use these tools, whether it's emoji, an emoji to uh, throw in that level of engagement. But if you put a period at the end of a text with someone you've never met and that they may read into that, maybe be conscious of it and and avoid it. At the same time, um, you know, if there's low trust and you're getting all caps messages, try not to read into them. It could be just that they're typing fast. Uh, or for example, I just heard recently someone on an airplane writing in all caps about to take off and their teammate freaking out, but it was really just because they were typing fast. Yeah. I mean, going back to early days um, of, of online etiquette, email, message boards, things that I used during college. Yeah. The, the all caps has been bad etiquette almost from the beginning, or it it leads to the mockery of, um, you know, incompetence of what's the opposite of a digital native. That's uh, right. Like, oh, uh, you don't know right. how to use your computer, but it could be either. That's right. It's kind of like the equivalent of being an Earthlink or Hotmail address. And I'm not going to judge too much because I've been there. I've used all caps before, so I'm dating myself. But I, what I did learn is that it is important to just take a second, second to be thoughtful about the signals we're sending out there, and also to avoid getting emotionally hijacked when you get ambiguous messages from others. So Erica, you know, we talk about, and you've mentioned you know, some of these mistakes that, that you've made with digital communication. I've made some of those mistakes uh, with the book. And again, the title is Digital Body Language. How much of what you write about in the book is born from your own experiences and experiences of people you've worked with versus research into um, these these new modes of digital communication. Mark, I think this book is both a lot has been a lifelong journey of observation and practice, both as a as a child and working professional, as well as 
uh, really grounded in research and statistics on how the tone of our emails can be misinterpreted up to 50% of the time and how that quick first seven milliseconds of a first impression that happens face-to-face happens in just a few seconds again in a Zoom meeting. I I grew up as a shy and introverted girl uh, and my parents were Indian immigrants. So at home, we spoke Hindi, which meant as a kid, we, I had accented English at school and mm-hmm. I'll never forget as a kid, you know, really struggling to find my voice and using body language to really understand how to juggle cultures and languages. I watched the popular girls with their heads high, the cool kids slouching during school assemblies. And it really taught me that it's not what we say, it's how we say it. And fast forward 30 years as a communications and collaboration expert, I I found that about four or five years ago, I kept hearing the same challenges from clients saying, why is there so much misunderstanding at work? Or how do we better connect with different ages and working styles? And one of the things I realized was that there was no rule book for the body of our language in a digital world. So just like I was an immigrant to traditional body language as a kid today, we are all immigrants to digital body language. That's why it's really a lifelong Um, journey of exploration and observation, as well as grounded in the newest research on why we need the skill more than ever to thrive in our new era. And you talk about, you know, these different eras and, you know, I, in a way I might, you know, I'm, I'm Gen X, but I grew up with computers um, in a way, a digital native, but those were not connected computers. Yeah. I didn't have email to my second quarter uh, in college and there's, there's a certain, you know, now, you know, the, 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 the connected age um, it's, it's just interesting to think how these, these different formative experiences we have maybe lead to different expectations or, or different habits. And so, you know, the earlier generations, I think this is the question I was trying to get to my mistake. Um, There's writing online and now we're increasingly in uh, a mode of interacting via video, um, especially accelerated um, with the pandemic. I mean, what, what are some of the things that you've found are the biggest mistakes when it comes to, you know, Zoom meetings or being on Teams or whatever the platform is, um, mistakes with digital body language and video meetings? So one of the things I learned through my research was that digital body language is not simply how we show up on a video screen. It's about how we make others feel in a modern marketplace, whether it's email, text, IM, or video. And in the last year, we have seen video calls as the norm, not the exception. And I think in many ways, they have been a brilliant way to build that emotional nuance back when we can't be face-to-face. At the same time, I think one of the things we've learned is that it's very easy to default to too many video calls Uh, a lack of thought in the design of those video calls. And maybe sometimes we don't need to be on video all the time. Uh, For example, there was a recent Stanford study that showed uh, that Zoom fatigue is real and it's also high for women. Uh, It's also high for introverts who did not want to be dealing with body language um, as well, but are having to navigate being on a screen all the time. I've also seen that the last year of calls have also been good in many ways to redesign meetings. I like to say that the last year has forced us all to think more like TV show hosts instead of uh, office hosts, where we have to have thoughtful agendas. If we really want to get people 
to the point in the meeting where we need to start every meeting clarifying why is everyone in this meeting? What would we like to achieve at the end? How will we engage others? And simple things like the virtual chat tool to avoid turn taking, to allow introverts to not have to fight for their voice to be heard, to use virtual whiteboards, to allow everyone to brainstorm together or actually speeding up innovation and inclusion in a way that our face-to-face meetings were not doing in the past. And I'll really sum it up with one story. I'll never forget pre-pandemic, I was on a conference call. Three of us were remote and three people were in the office. And it wasn't until the 26th minute of a 30-minute meeting that someone in the office said, does anyone on the phone have something to share? We had been excluded the entire time. (laughs) And I think that's really just one example that brings to life the power of the video call. But again, now knowing when to have them and when to just offer a phone call is also important. It's interesting you bring up the the opportunities for nonverbal communication, um, digital whiteboards and and chat. I'm a Myers-Briggs introvert. And um, yeah, you're right. Sometimes it is hard to sort of to get that word in edgewise. And you know, if the meeting facilitator's not looking for the body language that you can at least see on video compared to a dial-in conference call of like, Mark kind of leaned in. It looked like he opened his mouth like he wanted to say something. Maybe I'll call on him. That would be part of being that good TV host. That's right. I mean, I think in many ways we have to design for engagement. I have a client who always sends an agenda with questions in advance of the meeting. Then during the meeting, she says, I'd like everyone to share their answers on the chat or in a virtual whiteboard first. And everyone shares in writing first. This does a few things. One, we tend to think more in a more concise way if we write it first and then speak. Two, uh, she avoided groupthink. Research shows that, you know, extroverts usually share first and you're getting a lot of bias out of that. Uh, And people tend to agree with each other versus getting cognitive diversity. So what she does is once everyone's shared in writing, she calls on people with the most diverse or different perspectives. And then she always makes sure to call on people that, she hasn't heard from on a regular basis. This, again, really avoids that general bias that we'd often feel otherwise. And when we think about good meeting design or good meeting behavior, some of that is um, you know, classic advice updated uh, for the modern age, but then there are some other circumstances that, that might be new. Um, let's so, and I've been as guilty of this as anybody, um, you know, the, the, the mistake of multitasking during a meeting. Yeah. It's uh, obvious like when you're in a conference room and um, if you're on your computer or on your phone or staring at your watch or whatever bad body language uh, might come out. Um, For people who are doing uh, digital multitasking during an online meeting, I guess the question is, are, are they really fooling anyone or is their body language giving it away? You know, digital multitasking is at all-time highs. And let's be honest, it's easier. We're right in front of our screens. Um, and, and you know, we don't have that direct eye contact where it's, it's much easier to stop multitasking. My general rule of thumb here is people do notice. Uh, be present. Uh, simple things can help with this. First is don't have 30 and 60-minute meetings. Have 20-minute and 45-minute meetings. Often with a thoughtful agenda, you'll get to the point quickly um, and you'll leave those 10 minutes for people to catch up on email or catch up on other things. I think actually setting some standards can be helpful here. 
Secondly, if someone doesn't need to be in that meeting anymore, initiate what I call the Zoom BCC. Uh, so like an email, we BCC someone out, we loop them out so it doesn't clog their inbox. If someone doesn't need to be on a meeting anymore, just BCC them in the chat uh, so they know they can casually leave versus this awkward fear and guilt that we have to be in every meeting and listening all the time, which creates more multitasking. And last but not least, I, I think at the end of the day, meeting hosts have to really design to avoid multitasking. Uh, simple examples like the one I shared where everyone needs to share in the chat together or setting some norms up front saying you will cold call on people will tend to avoid those behaviors, but also other things such as saying, you know, at the beginning of a meeting, here's what we'd like to achieve at the end of the meeting. Here's how I'm going to engage all of you. And if we all stay present, I'm going to end the meeting 10 minutes early. That will quickly avoid multitasking because <laughs> it's about valuing others. And today that's valuing their time, their inboxes and their schedules. And I, I think recently, because of all of these um, online meetings, there's a phrase that seems to appear more on uh, T-shirts or memes or coffee mugs or whatever. This meeting could have been an email. And what are, what are some of your criteria? You, know, you, you hinted at this earlier about meeting design. And, um, but what, what are some of your guidelines for um, having a meeting versus sending out something that's more one directional communication, realizing people yeah. can reply, but should it be a meeting or an email? How would you decide? Yeah, absolutely. Well, we've had way too many meetings that should be emails. We've also had way too many emails that should be meetings or quick phone calls. <laughs> uh, we've had way too many text exchanges that could be quick phone calls. And, and so I think it runs the gamut and so much of digital body language is not only knowing how to engage within each digital channel, but when to switch the channel as well. Uh, so let's start with meetings. What are, what are the really the rules of when to have a meeting? I think meetings make decisions. Uh, they're not for information sharing. People can read that in, in emails before and after meetings, uh, but meetings should really be for the nuance of making decisions. And I really recommend in every meeting, especially virtual or hybrid, we need to make clear and everyone needs to be able to answer, why am I in this meeting or conversation? It needs to be scheduled for the minimal time required. I recommend the 20, the 40 minute meeting, start and end on time, always have a clear agenda and, you know, know when you don't and, and know how to regularly cancel recurring meetings that just keep getting <laughs> on, or on the calendar. Last but not least, I recommend sort of knowing when you need to move from a meeting to almost like a virtual co-working session. One of my clients started virtual office hours. He found that his teammates kept scheduling 30-minute phone calls for five-minute questions. So he said, every Wednesday, 10 to 11, we'll get on a Zoom and we'll co-work. And if you have a question, just ask me, like we are in the office. And it solved problems that would get delayed for weeks and get delayed for that 30-minute discussion. So knowing when you need to have that meeting, when you need that sort of co-working space, and when you can really opt for the email or the IM is incredibly important. When it comes to emails, I like to say, Get to the point quickly. The subject line should have a clear description of what the email is about. Remember, people read emails like websites. So be thoughtful of the body of your email. Do you use bold and underlined headings? Did you get to the point quickly? No one wants to read prose and email. And last but not least, if we go to even text IMs, get to the point quickly. Don't use them for endless chit chat. Really use them more uh, for quick, urgent messages. And it can uh, be very helpful to know that Meetings should really be more for that nuance and brainstorming. Emails should be for those recaps and information sharing. And those quick IM texting discussions should really 
be more for that casual chit chat that we would have had normally face to face that we would now have in those formats online. And one other thing I would plea for, you know, people are sending long emails or if they're writing a long blog post, please use the return key. Like don't write a big 20 sentence long paragraph giant block of text. Like that's, that's very hard to read, isn't it? I know. I know. You know, that's even what I struggled with writing a print book, uh, digital body (laughs) language, but you can see from my book, I even tried to put in visuals and boxes of examples. I think remember, remembering that we're all reading like websites now, even as we go back to face-to-face, we'll think in bullet points. um, And whether that's good or not, I think we have to know it's here to stay. So there's a couple of the questions I want to ask you um, while I've got you, Erica. One, you know, is every team, it seems, uh, or it's quite likely there's, there's one person who just never wants to turn on their video and they're not comfortable with it. Do you have advice for that situation? So we've all um, been there, right? We're on video, someone joins on off video, and then all of a sudden we're like, should we stay on video? Do we ask them to go on video? Do we go off video? Um, and and I think my general rule of thumb here is, you know, we're not two months into this. We're a year, more than a year into this. And it's the job of the meeting host to really set expectations. If you want people on video, let them know in the agenda before. What was implicit in traditional body language has to be explicit in digital body language. You don't want to create an opt-in. You want to create an opt-out. You know, and I've seen simple things like if you want people to be on video, maybe um, it's a screen share for most of the time. You could say, I'd love everyone on video for the first 10 minutes so we can create that emotional connection. Then you can go off video if you'd like, or the last 10 minutes during a team discussion portion. Sometimes that is enough because people feel exhausted of being on video all the time. Another thing is just making sure it's clear when video on is important and when it's not. And and last but not least, remember, we don't need a video for everything. Certain cases that it is really effective and others where it can actually be much easier to be off video, like even bandwidth. You know, listeners may have heard earlier, we we had some audio breakups where, you know, I edited out some of that and Erica and I decided to just turn the video off and, and do an audio only episode that that same thing happens in meetings sometimes, unfortunately. Right. But Mark, because we have that initial video interaction, it feels no different. And in yeah, we did a pre-call. We had our, our pre-chat before we started recording today and um, you know, I think being on video helps build rapport and, and helps give you a better sense of someone's personality and, and their enthusiasm for having a discussion about something even like mistakes. <laughs> so, um, but I think, yeah, well, I, I'll be able to publish, you know, the, the, your, your favorite mistake story in the first part of that as a video, even though, um, we won't have the entire episode. So that's, um, that's not all lost, I guess. So um, the other thing I wanted to ask you, Erica, like me, you're doing virtual speaking engagements now and, you know, the world's opening up again, but, you know, maybe there's still going to be a place for virtual speaking because it eliminates travel cost and travel time. Um, Are there some mistakes within the realm of virtual speaking that, that you might want to share with the audience here? You know, I'll never forget the power of reading body language in a room as a speaker in person. Uh, You know, when someone has crossed arms, maybe they were disengaged or um, if if they are smiling and excited, I know they really love the content. Uh, If they're 
leaning back or slouching. Maybe I know I need to do an engagement exercise to get them back into the conversation as I keynote. And uh, in these signals and cues were critical in being a successful in-person speaker. What I've learned as a virtual speaker is that there are a few things that really matter. Number one, engagement is not only about asking thoughtful questions to an audience when in a case, but really having them participate with you. I think if it's possible in every single session that I'm doing, I'm trying to get the hundreds of people to share their thoughts in the chat, whether it's an example, referring back to an example I shared, whether it's their top digital body language pet peeve, whether it's one action or commitment they're taking away from the session. And so it truly feels like a dialogue together in a collective experience versus a one-way talk. And I'll tell you, Mark, I have found it to be even more impactful than it ever was face-to-face because hundreds of people are sharing back with me versus me just being on a stage. The other thing I have learned about um, virtual speaking is that it does really matter um, to when you're looking into the camera. Research shows we make eye contact about 30 to 60% of the time uh, face-to-face, but when we're on screen, I recommend looking into the camera about 60% of the time. Even though we can't feel that connection with others, they can feel a better connection with us. And last but not least, I think third thing I've learned is that visuals really matter to tell the story. And if you were sort of a bombastic, gregarious speaker and you could use your traditional body language to sort of lead the charge, Tony Robbins style (laughs) face-to-face, this is the time to really upgrade in how you use visual cues Um, whether it's beautifully designed slides or an interactive poll or a game that can really amp your game and engaging others no matter the distance. And that's, that's all really great advice. Um, the, the, the book again, and we've been joined today by Erica Dewan, uh, the book's titled digital body language. And I love the subtitle here, how to build trust and connection, no matter the distance. Um, I think you know, it, it's, it's, I th- I've found, I'm curious your thought, maybe we'll leave this as last question, like working as a coach and an advisor, as I know you do as well. I think there's a difference between like ongoing virtual sessions with people you've previously worked with in person versus people, uh, you know, over this past year and a half where the relationship has only been digital. Um, I'm, I'm, you know, so I'm curious your your thoughts on, and I'm sure this is covered in the book, so I do encourage people to uh, to check this out. But um, maybe you know, like one one tip or thought on trying to help build trust through these digital channels. I, I do agree. I think that for those that started relationships in person and then adapted to a virtual world, it was easier. There was higher levels of trust initially. Uh, we had that first impression already pre-built into that relationship. So when something got confusing, when someone wrote a terse message, call me now, we didn't initially jump to judgment that they're a terrible person. We knew whether to pick up the phone and have that quick discussion uh, and that good intent was there. I, I think that when it comes to virtual first relationships, which is not only something that I think we've done more of in the pandemic, but for those that had remote businesses or e-commerce businesses. This is mainly how they've always worked. Um, Now we're just all doing it with them. I think that what is really important is to remember that you do have a virtual executive presence and that it does show up. And there are some things that really matter when it comes to showcasing good 
virtual executive presence. The third, the first thing I like to say um, that I call the four laws of digital body language is that we have to value others visibly for building new relationships. Make sure their time is respected. You're acknowledging them. You are creating a space where they feel comfortable voicing concerns. Read into if you're reading video body language cues. Are they confused? Are they looking down? Are they engaged and nodding? This will allow you to understand how to pivot and adapt to them. The second is communicate carefully. I I think always making sure in meetings and emails, there's a common understanding of priorities and next steps. You're being thoughtful of even the visual nature of your emails, um, just as much as you would and how you show up on a video screen. And you're using clear language to get on the same page. The third is collaborate confidently. So this is all about prioritizing thoughtfulness over hastiness. Uh, Making sure you're not rushing your messages. I'll never forget I sent a message to a leader saying, do you want to speak Wednesday or Thursday? And the response was yes. And I like to say (laughs) reading messages carefully is the new listening and writing clearly is the new empathy. And fourth, you know, last but not least, I call it the fourth law is trust totally, which is all about giving others the benefit of the doubt. Create those moments for informal social connection. Be vulnerable yourself and it will give others the permission to do the same. And when we When we get time to sort of just break down our own barriers and be natural online, stop reading from a script, just engage with others, they will feel permission in that connection back. Well, that's great advice, Erica. And I know the book, from what I've seen, the book is uh, really full of that. So I want to congratulate you on the release of the book. Congratulations on making the Wall Street Journal bestseller list. How how high did it get? I, the the number I have might be out of date or inaccurate, but I know it was on there. Yeah, number three on the Wall Street Journal bestseller list, um, and I am so grateful to be on Mark. I, I really believe that all of us that spent years mastering traditional body language with books, courses, on the job feedback, now is the moment when we can really all really master our muscles and our skills in digital body language. Well, thank you again for sharing so much with us today, Erica. Um, you go to show the introverted kids can become good communicators. So thank you also for, <laughs> for, uh, for demonstrating Sometimes that. Even the best communicators, because yeah. they learned how to be a written communicator before a verbal communicator. And written form, um, paper or a hardcover book and uh, ebook, digital body language, how to build trust and connection no matter the distance. We've been joined again today by Erica Dewan. Her website is ericadewan.com. That th- those links will be in the show notes. So Erica, thank you. Thank you again for being a guest today. Really enjoyed it. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks again to Erica Dewan for being such a great guest today. For more information about her and her work, you can find links and more at markgraben.com slash mistake91. Again, for uh, the first week of this episode's release, there is a contest that you can enter to win a free copy of the book. So again, for that, go to markgraben.com slash mistake91. As always, I want to thank you for listening. I hope this podcast inspires you to reflect on your own mistakes, how you can learn from them or turn them into a positive I've had listeners tell me they started being more open and honest about mistakes in their work. And they're trying to create a workplace culture where it's safe to speak up about problems because that leads to more improvement and better business results. If you have feedback or a story to share, you can email me, myfavoritemistakepodcast at gmail.com. And again, our website is myfavoritemistakepodcast.com.